This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. I'm Jeff Sturchio, Senior Associate at the Global Health Policy Center of CSIS. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Michelle Kazachkin, Professor of Medicine at the Université René Descartes in Paris, Special Advisor to UNAIDS for Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and a Senior Fellow with the Global Health Center of the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. This is one of a series of podcasts conducted at the International AIDS Conference in Montreal in which we explored what needs to be done to end the AIDS pandemic, both globally and domestically. Professor Kazachkin has dedicated over 30 years fighting AIDS and promoting global health as a physician, researcher, advocate, policymaker, diplomat, and administrator. He attended medical school at Neckar Enfant Malade in Paris, studied immunology at the Pasteur Institute, and completed his postdoctoral fellowships at St. Mary's Hospital in London and Harvard Medical School. Since 1984, he has been professor of medicine at the Université René Descartes in Paris. He also led the Department of Clinical Immunology at the Hôpital Européen Georges Pompidou from 1990 to 2005, and was a director of research at the French National Institute of Health and Medical Research, also known as INSERM, from 1995 to 2005. During his academic career, Professor Kazachkin has produced more than 500 research papers and has served on numerous editorial boards. From 1998 to 2005, Professor Kazachkin was director of the French National Research Agency, the world's second largest AIDS research program. During this time, ANRS shifted its focus from domestic research to public health work in Africa and the developing world. From 2005 to 2007, Professor Kazachkin was France's global ambassador for HIV-AIDS and transmissible diseases. As ambassador, he championed France's contributions to achieving the Millennium Development Goals and the establishment of UNITAID. He also represented France at the high-level meeting on HIV-AIDS at the UN General Assembly in May 2006 and was focal point on health in the French delegation to the St. Petersburg Summit of G8 leaders. Between 2002 and 2005, he served as the first chair of the technical review panel of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, leading the development of the fund's rigorous, transparent, and accountable process for reviewing grant applications. He served as vice chair of the board of the Global Fund between 2005 and 2006. In 2007, he was appointed as the executive director of the Global Fund, serving this position until March 2012. In his five years leading the fund, more than $20 billion in additional donor commitments and pledges were mobilized. Professor Kazachkin oversaw a major expansion of the Global Fund's operations and grant portfolio, establishing the fund as the major international financer of health programs. His leadership of the Global Fund consolidated his reputation as a leading global advocate for health and human rights. Between 2012 and 2017, Professor Kazachkin served as the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy on HIV-AIDS in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Since 2018, he is the Special Advisor to UNAIDS for Eastern Europe and Central Asia 
In this position, he focuses on building high-level political support for national and regional responses to the HIV, TB, and hepatitis epidemics, and advocates for improved access to prevention, treatment, and care for the populations most in need. It's a pleasure to uh, be talking with Dr. Michelle Kazachkin here in Montreal, Canada. We're both at the International AIDS Conference. Uh, and so uh, I'm glad we've had a chance to sit down and, and catch up on a number of issues and hear his perspectives on the state of the HIV response around the world. Why don't we start, Michelle? First, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And let's just start with what do you think are some of the most recent trends and breakthroughs in HIV AIDS treatment and prevention? To me, the trends and breakthroughs contribute to a feeling that we're in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I feel pretty optimistic for the future. I do believe we can end AIDS. I do not think, though, that this will happen everywhere in the world by 2030. Mm -hmm. I mean, we may have aspirational targets, but what strikes me is the disconnect between some of the essential tools we need to use to end AIDS and the timing that we set ourselves with these targets. Mm -hmm. It's urgent to end AIDS. But if fighting the obstacles linked to the structural, legal determinants of health, of inequities, mm -hmm. is essential, then that will not happen in, you know, in five years. It takes a lot of time. So the pace at which the move towards the end of AIDS uh, will progress will differ greatly between regions. But the overall directions, I think, is irreversible and the goals are achievable. Well, we've seen, we certainly have seen a lot of progress in the past 20 years. And, you know, UNAIDS uh, just issued its most recent global AIDS update last week and found that we still are seeing a decline in HIV infections uh, around the world, but not at the pace that we had hoped. Right. But we, we need to fully understand what, you know, uh, as we set these targets, 1990, 90, then 95, 95, 95, we have to fully understand what it is that we want to reach that will really prevent new infections mm -hmm. to occur. And data from Amsterdam uh, actually presented at this meeting uh, suggests that 1990-90 is not enough. Mm -hmm. And if you slow down on the response, even after reaching 1990-90, you still will see the recurrence of new infections. So 95, 95, 95 is probably a reasonable target. And again, that target, we're moving towards it, but let's say Eastern Europe and Central Asia, which is an area of the world I've been focusing on, is very far from it. It's somewhere 70, 50 to 50 at this time. Yeah. Well, and, and actually that was um, one of the points that UNAIDS um, focused on in, in their report, that Eastern Europe and Central Asia is one of the regions in which we're seeing more new infections. The number of new infections, Jeff, has uh, increased by 43% between 2010 and 2020. And mortality has increased by over 30%. And while globally, uh, the figures now are that about 75% of people living with HIV are on antiretroviral therapy, in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, it's around 50%. Absolutely. So it's one of the lowest regions in that respect. Let's dig into this. What are some of the reasons why that region is having challenges in really reaching these targets? Well, there are a 
a number of reasons. Of course, at first, let's say the region is heterogeneous by itself. So the elephant of the, in the room is the Russian Federation, mm -hmm. and it's actually the Russian Federation that is driving this increase uh, in new infections. A country like Ukraine has succeeded, I mean, before the war, mm -hmm. and uh, has succeeded in, in containing the growth and actually has seen decreasing new infections and only represents now 10% of the new infections in the region, although it is the second most populous country in the region. Other countries, particularly in the Caucasus and Central Asia, are countries that have either sort of stable figures or slight slower uh, increases, but the Russian Federation remains the driving force. Now, there are several factors contributing mm. to that. The first is that 90 to 95% of infections in that region is occurring among key populations. Mm -hmm. That is among people who use drugs, that's 50% of the new infections. Mm. Among sex workers, men having sex with men, migrants in situation of vulnerability. And these are societies where stigma and discrimination is high and where legislation and the way society addresses these populations are really totally outdated and, and disconnected from where they should be uh, in terms of policies. For example, let's focus on, on people who use drugs uh, or people who inject drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, unsafe drug injection is uh, 45 to 50% of new infections in the region in people who inject and their sexual partners. This is a region where there's almost no harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Despite all our efforts, there's zero harm reduction. I mean, zero opioid agonist therapy mm -hmm. in the Russian Federation, in Uzbekistan, which is the youngest population mm -hmm. uh, in, in the region, in Turkmenistan, and uh, in the other countries. And even Ukraine, the best sort of example, the uh, opioid agonist treatment program is somewhere around 20,000 people, let's say, where the population of people using drugs is estimated to be 250 to 300,000 people. Needle exchange programs uh, happen across the region, increasing, including in the Russian Federation, but again, at a very low and insufficient scale. The programs are not funded. They have long been funded by external partners, that is, uh, mainly the Global Fund, to some extent uh, the US also in, uh, in Central, some Central Asian countries, uh, but not in national budgets. And the punitive law enforcement prohibition uh, uh, linked associated law enforcement is such that people who inject drugs, people who use drugs are, are harassed by police, they're discouraged from seeking services, and uh, the epidemic continues. So that relates to what I was saying earlier. It will take a huge amount of time to bring the, the policy changes, the mindset mm -hmm. changes, and the national budgets that are needed to uh, really uh, deal with, the, with this fundamental structural determinants of, of the pandemic. We, we will win, uh, I'm sure, in, in the next few years we'll have, hopefully we will, we, we can speak of the war in Ukraine mm -hmm. in a minute, but I can see that uh, we can increase access to antiretroviral treatment, 
we can decrease the number who come to treatment uh, with delay. We can introduce new innovative prevention techniques such as uh, prep, mm -hmm. uh, self-testing, but fighting those obstacles mm -hmm. will be on a, on a time scale that is not compatible with the 2030 targets. You know, you've, you've sketched out a very, uh, a very complete picture of, the, the, of these challenges. You know, so the structural barriers to uh, people getting uh, care and treatment, the criminalization of, of HIV in some cases. Um, and criminalization of drug use and possession. Interestingly, in some countries, including in the Russian Federation, on paper, uh, possession for personal use is decriminalized. Hmm. However, you define possession for personal use uh, with thresholds of drugs that can be found on you uh, that would differentiate between a user and a trafficker. But the thresholds are so low that basically everyone ends up mm -hmm. uh, arrested and incarcerated. Yeah. Well, it's true. And actually, that's been uh, dramatized in the U.S. recently because of Miss Griner, the basketball player who was right. caught in that net in, in Russia. And uh, yeah. Um, that's just one example, obviously. But what, the point I was getting at is, you know, you're, you're absolutely right about these uh, structural and social determinants. But how do you think there's going to be progress on those issues in Russia and, and the region? Well, first, uh, there are a number of countries in the region that have clearly taken the direction of moving towards uh, becoming a Western mm -hmm. democracy. So uh, Moldova and Ukraine have now are now candidates to joining the European Union in the future. Georgia is not yet, but is certainly looking forward to that very much. Central Asian countries, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, you know, major and, and the poorer Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan countries, as you will have noted, have kept distance with the conflict and certainly with the Russian Federation. They're uh, sort of torn between their dependency on the Russian economy, remittances from migrant workers from these countries to Russia is an essential source of income mm -hmm. uh, to these countries. And a number of these countries are part of the so-called Eurasian economic space. So on the one hand, they're highly dependent on the Russian economy. On the other hand, they're also looking a lot towards China, towards Europe, and if I can say so, they bravely uh, abstained in most recent uh, UN votes mm. condemning the uh, invasion and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So they're taking their distance. And I think as they move in a different space, playing Russia, China, Europe with a weaker Russia in the future, mm. I think that will help evolutions in terms of, of legislation, of how the society looks at these issues. For example, uh, just a few weeks ago, Kazakhstan stopped a death penalty, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, is, is a major progress. You know, as, you, uh, as you've been talking, it just, it just shows how complicated a geopolitical web issues around addressing the HIV pandemic. Uh, so yes. And we sometimes, I hear, you know, in, in, in this meeting, in other meetings, we do as much as we can, we the scientists, we the physicians, but it's all political. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yes, it is. And um, Jeff, we've been talking about this, you know, for a long time. Health is political. Mm -hmm. Human rights is political. And, and this can be 
looked at as discouraging, but this should also be looked at as the opportunity. So we need to work on the political opportunity that can only be multilateral and we're in bad times you know, these days, but we, we have to build on this. The fact that this political is an opportunity that we have to seize and to work on. We can't say it's political, therefore, you know, I, I, this is not my area. No. Yeah, well, and of course, if, if we look back over the last 20 some years, um, it's by seizing political opportunities, as, as you just alluded to, we've made real progress. The Global Fund and PEPFAR and, you know, many other, we can point to many other changes. I think also of the uh, political declarations every five years at the uh, UN. And I think that's where UNAIDS has made a significant contribution, helping negotiating these. And, you know, I, I have been part of a number of these negotiations and early on the representative of my country I remember in 2006, you know, you, you just couldn't name the, the key populations yeah. we've made uh, and step by step. But again, this takes time. And unfortunately, uh, that time is, 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 is a much too long time for people who are at least for people who seek uh, and people who need treatment. Yeah, and, and as you point out, it's, uh, I mean, there is, although there's progress overall, it's not uniform. Uh, you know, you alluded to, for instance, men who have sex with men and people who inject drugs, sex workers. Um, you know, UNAIDS in its most recent global report showed that the, the risk they face of, uh, of HIV infection in the case of... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, it's, we have to address those questions. And, the, and as you said, the complex of issues having to do with human rights and, and political will around those changes. And in addition, well, one of the uh, things that have clearly emerged, has clearly emerged you know, from, from the early 2000s, is that addressing these population needs uh, working with the mm. communities. Sure. And sort of the uh, more difficult these populations are to reach, and I don't particularly like the wording, you know, hard to reach populations, mm. but let's use it here, the harder people are to reach, the more we need uh, community involvement and the more we need community-based research as implementation research to understand how interventions can be accepted, co-designed and implemented with these populations. And here again, we, uh, if we turn to Eastern Europe and Central Asia, we face a major challenge, which is the progressive reduction of the civil society in mm -hmm. space and of civil liberties. Of course, in the Russian Federation these days, it's absolutely tragic, but in a number of other countries as well. Kyrgyzstan was, which was maybe the only, although chaotic, but mm -hmm. let's say the only truly democratic uh, country in the region is now turning again to an autocratic mm -hmm. regime. So I'm very concerned. Uh, around the political capacity of these societies to to understand that it is only a strong partnership and the involvement of the communities and civil society that, that, that can help them solve a public issue and public health threats for the entire population. No, that's a that's really a critical point. I'm, I'm glad you focused on that. Let's let's turn to the Ukraine conflict. Uh, you know, you mentioned this before, and it's like 
the elephant in the room in, in Europe now um, with the impact that it's been having uh, through refugees and, and uh, forced migration and then the follow-on impact on food security, energy security, and, and other things. And obviously, this has major disruptive effects on public health in, uh, in the region. Where do things stand now? What uh, Well, there's, on the one hand, there's Ukraine. On the other hand, there is the region as a whole. So let me just briefly say that I'm very concerned that we will face a major public health crisis across the region. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the Russian Federation, but in all countries, as we discussed a minute ago, that are economically associated, uh, if not dependent, on the Russian economy. These are countries in the region that, in the last decades, have been fighting HIV hepatitis with very on very constrained budgets, limited, relatively limited international support, societal environment are unfavorable. And on this, just imagine the shock. Go back, let's go back to Kyrgyzstan. The, the, the currency in Kyrgyzstan so lost 40% since mm -hmm. March. Remittances from migrant workers fell over 20%. Uh, exact mm -hmm. figure while they were ex expected prior to the war to increase. Uh -huh. So how can that country uh, procure expensive TB drugs or whatever, or innovative uh, drugs uh, or PrEP programs? Mm -hmm. So for HIV, TB and public health in general, I think the next two to five years will be very, very challenging in the region. And, and I'm Concerned that this is not currently in, in the discussions. You know, there are international, lots of international fora on how we reconstruct Ukraine and, and, and how do we support Ukraine. But uh, I'm very concerned about the health impact of the war across the region. Mm. And I don't enter, you know, any uh, consideration here. And, and in no way I would absolve, you know, the Russian Federation, but, but the Russian population and the Russian key populations and Russian and patients in Russia with TB and HIV, you know, will, will suffer and will face huge challenges. And let's not forget that, as we discussed, this is the only region where the number of infections increases. This is also a critical region, a hybrid region for multidrug-resistant TB. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge challenge in terms of uh, healthcare budgets, even though we, we have, so we, we now have new technology, new diagnostic mm -hmm. tools, we have new regimens, we have new drugs. But the region is, 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 is struggling. And even Ukraine, where I, I said it is doing well, in, uh, in HIV is not doing so well in TB. So, first point, I think we can very reasonably, unfortunately, anticipate a health crisis across the region. In Ukraine, destructions of infrastructures, healthcare personnel killed, injured, might have left the country or moved across the country because of, of the country uh, shortages in, in, in medicines, Huge challenges in delivering things because of bridges, roads, cuts. So a, a you know thirty percent of the infrastructure destroyed. At the same time, so it's a mixed picture because at the same time there are amazing first amazing there is amazing resilience 
amazing areas of, let's call it normality, next to areas of the hottest spots for mm-hmm. fighting. So, or from a macro perspective, you know, at this point in time, somewhere around 85% how systems are somehow working hmm. in Ukraine. So what Ukraine is, is, is and, and, and that's also, you know, thanks to a heroic engagement of, of the healthcare workers uh, and of, uh, you know, our colleagues, some of which are, are, who are here in Montreal to testify from NGOs and, and, and communities that, that have been delivering methadone, uh, which in Ukraine used to be delivered by convoys of armored cars, yes, hmm. delivered uh, bringing the methadone to some places in the trunk of, of, of their uh, car. And I've seen, I was in, in uh, Chernihiv in the north of Ukraine, which was one of the first uh, occupied uh, cities and, and oblast uh, in North Ukraine near the Belarusian uh, border after the first weeks of the, of, of the war and now has been liberated. I was there and I heard amazing stories, you know, of the nurse, uh, of an, an elevators destroyed in the major hospital and the nurse, you know, taking off her back, the patient hmm. 90 kilograms and bringing him down by the stairs, surgeons operating you know, under the bombing in, in cellars. And, mm. uh, so the resilience is extraordinary. Ukraine now, uh, I, I think from a health perspective, has to fight on sort of three fronts. It has to keep fighting on, on the front line. Mm. And, uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. It has to uh, recover somehow in areas that are recovered, like the recently liberated areas in Chernihiv, in Kharkiv, in the Kharkiv region. And then it has to start working on reconstruction. Then there are now international conferences on the reconstruction of Ukraine that will be, I'm sure, funded by Europe and other partners. There was a major conference in Lugano not long ago. And somewhere we have to also take the opportunity of this reconstruction of Ukraine to move forward faster the reforms. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I've seen in Chernihivo uh, a TB hospital of 350 beds that, that was bombed and destroyed. But we do not want any more uh, institutions of 350 beds for TB, mm-hmm. ambulatory services. Yes. Sure, sure. And uh, so there is an opportunity as we think of reconstructing Ukraine in, in that regard. Then coming back to the front line, what I am learning, which I sort of didn't figure out and, and which I think people just don't see, we, 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 we keep thinking that the front line are the wounded, uh, the killed, of course, the, the, and, and it is the case, the military casualties, mm-hmm. but it is also a civilian emergency. Mm. There are 800 HIV patients on treatment in Mariupol at this time. Mm. They're running out of medicines. Mm. So there are, of course, uh, you know, vaccinations have stopped. There are risks of cholera, uh, polio. People with chronic diseases, you know, beyond HIV, people on TB treatment, people uh, with uh, diabetes uh, are out of treatment. And uh, to, as far as I know, and you know, reasonably informed, the Russian Federation is not currently bringing the 
necessary medical support. And by the way, the international law stipulates that when you invade the territory, you have to take mm-hmm. care of the civilian populations. So, I mean, in a nutshell, that's how I see the situation in Ukraine. So looking sort of far forward, reconstruction will be an opportunity to move mm-hmm. reforms and, and of course the candidacy to the European Union and that dynamic uh, will, will help. But until we get there, the next years will be very difficult and the impact of the war you know, will be there for many, many years. Yeah, no, it, I, I mean, obviously it's, uh, it's been a harrowing experience for the people involved. And as you said, it's, it raises all kinds of long-term implications that it's going to be challenging to deal with. So, um, you know, one other dimension of this that you haven't spoken about, though, are the millions of internally displaced and, and refugees um, who've been forced to move, to leave because of of the, yes. the Russian aggression. What impact is that having? How are uh, you know how have the surrounding countries been able to manage the public health implications of those well, displacement pressure? You know, of course, Poland that hosts most of the refugees, uh, but uh, the countries with less uh, strength and, and readiness, such as Romania or Moldova, uh, despite the international support, the major issues are chronic diseases and mental health. Mm-hmm. Mental health. HIV and TB, we were fearing somehow, you know, but the figures we have are, are, are less concerning than, than we thought they would be uh, in the early days of the war. And that's primarily because most of the people who migrated out of the country are young women mm-hmm. and children. And if you think of TB, for example, an MDR-TB is 70% males in, mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Uh, and males cannot leave the territory. And with regard to HIV, there's been a huge solidarity efforts. NGOs, governments have put on systems. Of course, a few people, you know, lost their way and weren't finding where to go. But the system uh, has been absorbing uh, the needs. Well, let me turn uh, for the final uh, area to discuss to... um Another long-term issue. You started with the long-term issue of uh, we may not get to um, ending AIDS by 2030 because of the structural constraints and and political uh, dimensions that aren't getting the attention they need and take longer to resolve. Another long-term issue is is financing the HIV response. And another um, part of the UNAIDS Global AIDS Report last week showed that in lower and middle-income countries, there's been a decline of 6% in funding of the AIDS response over the past 10 years. It's now about $21 billion, but the need is $29 billion, so that there's an $8 billion gap. You were just talking about the need for reconstruction in Ukraine. and the Which will bill- be $500 billion. Yeah, so, so you know, the reason I raise that is that that's another uh, crisis that donors and, and, uh, and the governments directly affected are going to have to find money for. What are are you optimistic about the long term financing of the HIV response, or is this uh, something that we have to think about differently than we have been thinking? I believe we have to think differently mm-hmm. because, of course, from now we are approaching the next replenishment of the global fund, and uh, it is absolutely key. You know, as everyone says, so I will not dwell on it. You know mm-hmm. that that we get those eighteen billion uh, for the global fund. 
But let's not forget uh, that it is a national program that is primarily funding the HIV and CD response and should be funding it. So I think as we look to the future, we have to clearly distinguish or delineate between the low-income countries where um, you know, international support will be absolutely fundamental to maintain and then to hopefully increase the, the, the capacity of this country to respond to HIV. But there are less and less low-income countries mm-hmm. and the number of people with HIV in low-income countries is less than it was 10 years ago. Uh, and most of the uh, people with HIV and TB are in middle-income countries, low-middle-income countries, upper-middle-income countries. Uh, and these countries have also to fight uh, what you know a number of economists and World Bank shown, which is a displacement, you know, as the global fund have far have been bringing money into the countries, the, money, the countries have not been increasing, mm. you know, their domestic uh, spending. I mean, India is still having 2% of its budget uh, products and on, on, on for health. So in the future, you know, as we move from where we were in the times of the uh, Millennium Development Goals, with a rich north, a poor south, and a solidarity effort to tackle the global uh, pandemic, to uh, we're now in a totally different world, which is not north and south, which is multipolar. Mm-hmm. And at a time where, uh, of course, pandemics and other global health threats require collective action, but the collective action must be a partnership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have to move out of the charity solidarity, and I hate the words here, mm-hmm. a lot of it to see what I mean, to a partnership constructive and politically um, sustainable in the long term model of co financing. Mm-hmm. And um, as we, you know, the discussions on how much the global fund in the future should become a partner in pandemic preparedness and response, for example, and the changes that we see even in the US in global affairs and in how, you know, issues are looked at much more horizontally than they were Mm -hmm. uh, in the past years, to me means that models of of, of funding will will have to change. The global funding FR cannot sustain, by the way, their only global fund is only or 20 percent critical mm-hmm. but, of the, but um, you know they, they cannot sustain uh, the HIV response in, in middle income countries so uh, we haven't been very good and uh, I remember that you know in, in my times we started some of these transitions as we were calling them and as we as the global fund was sort of transitioning out of some middle income countries um, uh, the, the, the national funding will, will not follow. So um, we, we have to find first, um, you know, we have to find a, a political new equilibrium somehow in the multipolar world of where I believe regional commitments will be, solidarity uh, commitments will maybe 
uh, would be even uh, more meaningful than global, like mm-hmm. everything coming from Geneva, mm-hmm. because we see regional patterns of economic developments, regional patterns of, of epidemics and, 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 and threats and responses to global threats. So that model of the 2000s uh, clearly has to evolve. Yeah, well, it, um, you've come back to a point you made earlier about how um, health is political. And in the end, it, uh, it's going to require political realignment and, and political sustainability of responses, as you said. So, I, and, uh, so on the one hand, I'm very discouraged by the state of the world, yes, state of multilateralism, mm-hmm. nationalism, seen a, a mess within Europe mm-hmm. in the early days of COVID, where every country was responding to itself. I'm not commenting on the U.S. administration in, in, in the first year and a half of COVID, but very discouraging state of, uh, of, of affairs in, 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 in multilateralism. And yet, I continue to think and believe that health is maybe the one topic with environment that can bring people uh, together to, to reasons. Well, that's a good note on on which to end, because uh, you started by saying you were optimistic about where we are with uh, with the HIV response. And I think, you know, your last comment suggests that health and the environment are areas where we may see more optimism for collective action in the future. So thanks so much, Michelle. This has been a wide ranging and and fascinating conversation. We really appreciate your taking the time to join us today. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 